This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The loss of manufacturing jobs, particularly in rural America, is a big issue these days. And some Colorado investors believe the gap can be filled in part by small-town entrepreneurs who have big ideas. That's our focus today in The Disruptors. That's what we're calling our coverage of the startup world. Entrepreneur and venture capitalist Brad Feld is working with the state to nurture small-town entrepreneurs. Feld leads Startup Colorado and founded the Boulder-based investment firm Foundry Group. And Brad, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Give me an example of a startup that's been successful in rural Colorado, the kind of thing you want to replicate. One of the best-known ones in Colorado in recent history is a company uh, called Mercury Payment Systems, which was headquartered in Durango and uh, grew very, very quickly. I was on the urge of a, pub- a verge of a public offering and was acquired by a company called Vantif uh, just before that happened. Was that a big, big deal? Yeah, I think it's about a billion and a half dollar acquisition. So from the perspective of a, a raw startup and a growth curve business, uh, one of the larger ones that uh, we see around here. More than a billion dollars. Goodness. Okay. Mercury payment systems. And I, I don't know, what is it about that besides the dollar figure, I suppose, that uh, is worth replicating in rural Colorado? I think philosophically... Uh, I've believed for a very long time, and it's uh, a core part of the book that I wrote in 2012 called Startup Communities, that you can not only build startup communities in in any city in the world, but for a city to be healthy long term, no matter what its size, uh, it needs to have a startup community uh, in it as an essential component of what's going on around the city. Mercury payment systems, what what did they do? And I, I suppose the question is, uh, how well did that fit with Durango's workforce? I mean, Durango only has 18,000 people. Yeah, I think it's less uh, the specific and more the general, which is this idea that um, uh, the energy around innovation and company creation is essential. And historically, there was an enormous amount of entrepreneurship and innovation um, in lots of rural parts of the country, whether it was around heavy manufacturing or around agriculture. And as our economy has shifted away from agricultural-based economy or, again, next generation of industrial revolution, understanding that information-intensive jobs, technology-related jobs, um, software development, uh, as well as jobs that can be done remotely from anywhere because of the way that distributed work happens – engages these entrepreneurial activities in these smaller communities that are distributed throughout the state. Ah, and you talk about the workforce not necessarily having to be in that community. They can be all over the country or the world, potentially, with the technology that connects us. And uh, just for clarity's sake, Mercury Payment Systems was a processor of like credit cards and debit cards, that kind of thing. Correct. Yeah. And if you if you look at some other distributed companies that – uh, this sort of notion of uh, a company that's completely focused on a local geography, while they're called small businesses, and a lot of people call them startups, it's really the distinction between a local business, which is focused on selling into the particular geography that they're located in, and a startup, which may be located in a particular geography, but is focused on customers, employees, um, partners that are geographically distributed all around the world. Okay. So it is businesses in a small community that may have their eye on the globe. Now, when I think of Durango, I think of a fairly wealthy 
ski town, right? I mean, um, does, is Durango the kind of place in Colorado, the kind of rural economy that needs the injection? Well, it's a, I think it's a magic superpower of Colorado. And if you look at a map of Colorado and think about how the state is configured, uh, we have a secret weapon in Colorado, which are our mountain towns and the ski communities. And they're a secret weapon for a couple of reasons. It's not that those cities themselves um, are the focal point of activity of spreading all of this, but they're convening points for a concentration of activity that's near them. So, for example, if you drew a radius of 25 miles around any of the ski towns in Colorado, uh, drew a circle with a radius of 25 miles, go to Aspen or go to Telluride uh, or go to Vail, all of a sudden you're capturing a lot of communities. And and if you're really bold, make it 50 miles. Um, You're capturing a lot of communities that are not in the ski towns but are adjacent. The powerful thing here is not just the people in the ski towns but the input-output model of people. So the notion that – um, you know, somebody like uh, my wife and I, Amy, spend time in Aspen because we have a house there. So we're coming from the Front Range to Aspen, but we're also engaging with Basalt and we're also in, engaging with Glenwood Springs. We have family in Hotchkiss. So when we're coming to a place like that, we're also spending time in these adjacent towns that are smaller towns that are part of the backdrop of rural Colorado, but are very integrated into and can be integrated into those communities, not taken over by, but adjacent to. The other part of that that's super important is it's not just people from the Front Range who are coming and engaging through their time in these mountain towns with the extended community beyond that, but it's also people from other parts of the country and the world. So investors and entrepreneurs from the East Coast and the West Coast that come to various ski towns in Colorado, if we can help them understand that there's a lot to do within, again, a 50-mile Uh, radius of that ski town and get them to spend a little bit of their time engaging with the next generation of entrepreneurs in that area. Some magical things can happen. The state allocated $9 million to create an investment fund for rural businesses. You've also raised money for a network that would help connect rural entrepreneurs to investors in other places. Uh, Is it fundamentally more difficult to attract venture capital in small towns? There's a lot of, uh, I would say, flawed conventional wisdom around uh, capital in different geographies. And one of them is this whole notion of actually attracting venture capital to different regions, small and big. Uh, It turns out that the early stage financings for most high growth companies, the first couple of million dollars generally doesn't come from venture capital. Some does. But an awful lot of it comes from angel investors and friends and family and other people in the community. Interesting thing about the challenge of the next layer is there isn't enough connectivity between the investors in those local geographies and investors elsewhere. And as a result, there's often a dearth of capital in these smaller towns because they're just not getting connected into the flows of capital. Interesting. So it's almost that this is an ability to support a business in a middle place, right? Maybe they got money from Aunt Marjorie or something, and then it's really the money to grow beyond that point. And and so what types of businesses do you imagine that state money might be invested in? Are we talking about agricultural startups because of rural Colorado? Or, gosh, I'm thinking about outdoor gear. Smart wool started in Steamboat. It's now a part of Timberland. What do you imagine could come out of these You're on the right track. I mean, think about all of the different things that 
happen throughout the state. And if you start anchoring on one particular thing, you miss some of the beauty of Colorado as a, a whole ecosystem, right? You obviously have opportunities in ag. Outdoors is a huge component of our – outdoor and recreation, a huge component of our city. Uh, natural foods and other type of food uh, activity beyond just pure ag is quite interesting. And you actually look at that then being connected to not just the natural resources but the intellectual resources of the region, right? Boulder as a front-range city is one of the uh, ground zero for the natural foods movement. Um, being able to link that into a local food supply uh, and tie it into a number of businesses, you know, in other parts of Colorado that are food and ag-related businesses could be quite interesting. And then, you know, you just keep going, right? As long as we have – and it's a weakness of the state. That's something that I think a number of people are working on. You know, if we can get to the place where we have broadband available for everyone throughout the entire state uh, and high-speed internet, you know, all of a sudden this notion of technology – jobs, service businesses that are linked into the technology infrastructure, distributed retail and specialty goods, like all of these types of companies that, you know, today might grow up in a city like uh, Denver on the Front Range uh, or New York City. There's no reason to believe that some of these cities couldn't get their or pro companies couldn't get their start anywhere. Is there an area of this state you have your eye on that could be the next big startup community? Yeah, not really. I'm okay. fascinated about the whole state. And from my frame of reference, my assertion is that the power is a network model, not a winner in this city or winner in that city model. So one of the things that's been so powerful about Startup Colorado, which started about uh, 2010, it was an outgrowth of a program called Startup America uh, that was a public-private partnership with the Obama administration, is what happened up and down the front range. So if you go back to 2010, the most vibrant startup community in Colorado was in Boulder. Boulder and Denver had roughly the same number of startups, plus or minus, but Denver's 20 times the size of Boulder. So the density of activity in Boulder was 20x Denver. Oh. There were a lot of things that were happening and being done in Boulder within the startup community that essentially Denver imported. And they imported by people in Denver coming to Boulder and spending time in Boulder and understanding what was happening. And entrepreneurs in Boulder actively going to Denver and getting engaged with that startup community. So I imagine you want that same cross-pollination between urban and rural areas in Colorado. In just the last few seconds here, Brad, if the state is helping invest in rural entrepreneurship, is it potentially um, getting into bad deals that may go south? Is, is, is there a risk here? I don't think that there's any uh, unnecessary risk. The way the state program works is there's two components. One is the investment component, which comes from the venture capital authority, and they actually give the funds to a venture capital manager to invest. And the quality of that venture capital manager is important, but that's a return-seeking activity. Okay. And that in, that that's how that investor is uh, rewarded. On the other side is a public-private partnership, uh, which is a combination of some funding from the state, about $700,000, and then private funding of about a million four to help create a bunch of this network infrastructure, not just impose it on people, but facilitate it organically so that people throughout Colorado are engaging and attaching to the startup community that grows beyond just a couple of the major cities on the Front Range. Thank you for being with us.
You're welcome. Entrepreneur Brad Feld leads Startup Colorado and founded the Foundry Group in Boulder. He also blogs about entrepreneurship. Our conversation about rural startups is part of the Disruptors, our coverage of entrepreneurship in Colorado. And if you have a story about an interesting new venture or business trend in Colorado we'd like to know, email news at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Steamboat Springs will not lower the cost of skiing at Howelson Hill to a dollar. The small, mostly locals hill is iconic. It's considered a birthplace of ski jumping in America. But these days, it struggles to attract skiers. Last week, we told you about a council member's idea to offer locals $1 lift tickets. But the city council just decided that would be too extreme. They did decide to offer more free skiing on select Sundays at Howelson this season to lure both locals and tourists. Now to Grand Junction. The last time voters there approved a property tax increase for schools, current high school seniors were in kindergarten. Civic leaders hope voters are ready for another tax increase. CPR's Allison Sherry reports. Ask advocates why Grand Junction schools need more money, and they'll introduce you to Bartholomew. Bartholomew is still here? Yes. Okay, we, sorry, we're going to just invade Bartholomew is not a student or a teacher, but a nickname for a weed growing through the wall at Orchard Mesa Middle School. The kids named it. Maintenance workers chop it down or cover it with crates of books, but it always grows back fed by the water that seeps in from the roof when it rains. And that's for real, that it's a significant-sized weed growing out of a crack in a science classroom. That's Kelly Flanagan, who runs the campaign to get voters to raise their property taxes to fund the schools. Flanagan is a mom and can cite all kinds of problems with the schools, including the fact that textbooks say Bill Clinton is president, and there are half a million square feet of asbestos in ceilings, walls, and floors failing roofs, HVAC systems. They've been repaired so many times that now they don't make the parts to repair them anymore. They need to be replaced. Community leaders here are mostly Republicans, but across the board, local politicians and business leaders are huge boosters of this tax increase. There are two different measures on the ballot. One would pay for capital construction and another would pay for academic improvements, including adding school days to the year. Mayor Rick Taggart says he is embarrassed about how low per-pupil funding is for District 51. And I, and I realize we're not as wealthy as a community as, as a Cherry Creek area. Trying to compare to Cherry Creek would be difficult, but we've got to close that gap. There is no organized opposition to this tax increase, but Taggart and others acknowledge it will still be difficult to get this proposal past Grand Junction's fiscally conservative voters. People here haven't approved a boost for the school district since 2004, and for decades have not approved a sales tax increase either. Colorado Mesa University has been trying to help this district with its own limited resources by paying for college counselors at the city's four high schools. President Tim Foster says money is an unmistakable problem for the local schools. You know, we as a, as a region have got to continue to escalate and improve the educated status in our communities. And, you know, high school diploma used to be adequate for things. And you look at the economy that we live in, and, and so a high school diploma and the ability to turn a wrench 
isn't going to get you a job on that factory floor. Former educator Phyllis Hunsinger has been challenging the tax increase proposal. Hunsinger says she doesn't trust the bloated administration of the local school district, and she's not sure the extra money will actually benefit children. I believe the most important factor affecting student learning is the teacher. And that's where the emphasis ought to be. And I think the support should be at that level because that's what makes a difference. But Principal Sherry Vanna says teaching and infrastructure are related. Because of the asbestos in the roof of her school, the HVAC had to be installed below the ceiling. This means some tall students have to duck in the library. And the noise is super disruptive. Teachers are actually trying to convey very specific or important concepts. And all of a sudden the air comes on. And you can't hear, you literally can't hear the teachers teaching. Vanna and other civic leaders hope stories like this are enough to sway the city's historically tax-averse voters to give more money to the public schools. From Grand Junction, I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. With Denver's explosive growth, Jesse De La Cruz wants to capture aspects of local culture that may be forgotten. De La Cruz is an art archivist and founder of a new nonprofit called Art Hive. And Jesse, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What can artists help capture right now that might otherwise be lost? Oh, it's a difficult question, but um, I think this project really. Um, was a result or influenced by uh, the closing of the DIY art spaces in the city. So these were often sort of makeshift spaces where artists gathered and had community and created together. There were concerns, of course, about their safety. Correct, yeah. Um, And I just realized as these spaces were closing that what kind of records or documents do we have um, that would really speak to to what was happening there and, and to um, uh... well, that's okay. So one thing that that occurred to you was to look into archives because this got you thinking about memory. It got you thinking about how to document things that disappear in a quickly changing city. And uh, I think of artists as having a tricky relationship with the muse, where to get inspiration from. And you are thus sending artists to dig into archives that exist, I understand. What what makes archives a good place to start for an artist, for material? Yeah, so archives are these really rich repositories of raw information and um, so many untold stories. And what's great about archives is the artist or the researcher, the scholar, they get to be the one that creates and brings these stories to life. Um, So it's not guided per se. Um, I think of how many archives there are, big and small, right? Uh, Museums have archives, but so do, you know, county libraries and things like that, that these are places you could mine all over the state, I suppose. Yeah. Um, when we initially put the proposal together for the Archives as Muse, we reached out to many archives across the state. And I learned about um, uh, the Letterpress Depot Museum in Inglewood. The um, Letterpress Depot Museum. What's that? 
Um, I believe they are a museum and archive that's capturing um, old letterpress um, machines, materials, books. The the way we used to print, in other words. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, There's an archive on telecommunications here in the city. Um, The archive of, um, what is it? around glaciers and um, science and um, and then of course um, Denver Public Library's Western History and Genealogy. Yeah, which is just teeming with documents, teeming with photos. And you think that all of this can be great inspiration. Again, in a place that's changing so fast and with so many new people moving here who may not be connected to that history. Uh, you unearthed, this project did, uh, some audio from the Maria Rogers Oral History Program. This is in Boulder. And I understand that uh, there was an interview in that archive with an artist who talks about Rocky Flats, the site of the former nuclear trigger factory. And uh, this inspired a, a piece of performance art. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, that piece is um, uh, by Esther Hernandez. Um, she's a performance artist in Denver, and she was inspired by this oral history and is going to do a live performance Friday at Leon Gallery where um, she's going to be uh, crying in these tear ducts that, with tubes that feed um, plants. And the whole project is around um, mourning and grief, and she's going to be accompanied by um, Victoria Lundy, a music a musician. I see. So there will be music in this performance art. And I suppose those are themes that she ran into in the archive, these themes of grief. Yes. Yeah. How so? Oh, um, I, I believe the artist, um, when she was talking about... Her relationship with Rocky Flats. Yeah. Sounds like I caught you off guard on that one. That's okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Jesse De La Cruz, who is founder of a new nonprofit in Denver called Art Hive. And uh, the idea here is that artists dig into archives uh, in a project called Archives as Muse and unearth the history of this place, give it new life. Uh, You recently opened the doors of the Clifford Still Archives to artists. And this is actually where you are an art archivist at the Clifford Still Museum in Denver. And one of the artists wrote poetry based on that experience, digging into the archives related to this artist. How how did this come together? Um, That artist, uh, her name is Alyssa Lewis. Uh, She's a poet. Um, and she came and was reading journal entries and, and digging through the archives. And what she was really inspired by was um, the work of Patricia Still, which was Clifford Still's um, wife, oh. who was kind of this unacknowledged legislator of Clifford Still's estate. And so her work is really influenced um, She's kind of giving voice to Patricia Still and Patricia Still's role in developing and maintaining this archive. Let's hear a little bit of the poem she wrote out of this search into the Clifford Still archives. I light every candle in the house until it's almost too dark to write, too dark to write. I seek a painter's shadow, summon a shade, shun drum heavy emptiness to seek a summoning shade, a gravitational emptiness. I want to point out that you think archives are in many ways seats of power 
and that that power isn't always equally shared, that there might be inherent problems in archives. What do you mean by that? Oh, um, well, most archives traditionally have been maintained and and kept by people um, in power. Um, so there's the saying that um, history is written by the victor. Uh-huh. Um, but archives are assembled, I suppose, by them too. Exactly. And so, so what voices have been um, removed from the historic record? Um, what voices have been marginalized? And I really think as a whole, archives are um, a, a sliver, a small representation of, of who we are collectively as people. And so it's your hope to add more voices to really an archive you're creating with these works, perhaps more diverse voices. Yes, I I think the main premise of the ArtHive project is actually to give the power over to the community and to the artists to self-curate, and they get to choose what enters into the archive. Um, So kind of removing the gatekeepers and the curators. You are also asking artists to create time capsules. What will those look like? Yeah, a time capsule, we accept 100 a year, and a time capsule is a snapshot of an artist's um, personal experience, process, kind of place and time. Um, and and they get to curate it. So it could be artwork, it could be um, biographical material, um, and they could contribute one every year if they like. It could be a band, it could be an individual artist. Um, you want eventually to build a crowdsourced memory bank to house all of this. I understand you don't have a space yet, but uh, where are you looking? Um, we're really interested um, in partnering um, with some people in Sun Valley um, next to Mile High Football Stadium. Yeah. Um, but right now, um, I think what's been so wonderful about this project is working with all of the different um, public libraries and art galleries and spaces and kind of just uh, hosting various programs. Uh, that in includes the Leon Gallery right now, where you host a symposium called Archives as Muse tomorrow night. And all week at the Leon Gallery, you can see works that are inspired by this archival material. Jesse, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Jesse De La Cruz directs Art Hive. We talked about that new nonprofit. And when we come back, a strange friendship in the Old West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They should have been mortal enemies, but while white settlers and American Indians waged war, Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull became friends. The famed cowboy and Indian chief were the stars of a traveling show that drew a million people a year in the late 1800s. Author Deanne Stillman has written Blood Brothers, which is the story of this strange friendship. Those are her words there, strange friendship. Deanne, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Ryan. Your book starts at the end of this friendship as Sitting Bull is being killed. Uh, It's a really haunting scene. Will you describe it? When Sitting Bull left Buffalo Bill's show in 1885 to return to Standing Rock, his home, Buffalo Bill gave him the horse that he rode in the show. And um, while Sitting Bull was being assassinated at his cabin in December of 1890, the horse was outside and it started to dance. Now, that happened because it had been trained to dance at the sound of gunfire in the Wild West show. 
So here, again, um, as the bullets were flying, the horse went into motion. <sighs> and this image just haunted me for many years, and it led me to write Blood Brothers. It has haunted me since I read it in your book. And yes, it was the genesis in many ways for this project for you. You see this this ghost horse as a symbol of the relationship between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. How, how so? Well, first of all, the horse had been stripped from the tribes by the U.S. government during the Indian Wars. Um, the only way to vanquish the tribes was really to take away their method of transportation and um, how they were fighting, you know, the U.S. cavalry, which, of course, was also mounted. The, the horse was a powerful weapon. Exactly. Uh-huh. And so the, in order to defeat the tribes, it wasn't enough to take away their food source, which, the buffalo, which, of course, was quite significant. But they really had to, as I say, strip them of their ponies. And that, was re- that really um, kind of broke their spirit. Uh, the ghost dance figures throughout the story, and particularly in, in Sitting Bull's death. But uh, explain a little bit more about what the ghost dance is. As the uh, Indian Wars were reaching their peak, um, a religious frenzy known as the ghost dance swept through the tribes of the Great Plains. And this was a call for a resurrection of sorts. It was said that if Native Americans danced um, fiercely and with great commitment, um, that the buffalo would return and the old ways would be restored and all would be right with the world. So, you know, it was a Native American call for a resurrection. I want to talk a little bit more about each of these men. So Sitting Bull was a leader of the Lakota Sioux, a warrior who is called the Napoleon of the Red Race or (laughs) the Napoleon of the Great Plains. He becomes chief at age 36. What did he look like and how did he carry himself, Sitting Bull? Well, he was a very proud and at the same time humble man. He had been told, he had learned while he was in his mother's womb that he was destined for great things. And he was treated that way accordingly by his people as he grew up. But more than that, he demonstrated that he was worthy of that stature. He was very in tune with animals around him. He received messages from them for years, which he heeded, including one from a meadowlark, which warned him that he would be killed by his own people. Um... He was a very generous man. He um, just, he commanded a lot of respect among, you know, warriors. He was um, an outstanding fighter. He um, was very uh, big-hearted, yet fierce. Um, In terms of how he looked, you know, one reporter described him as resembling Daniel Webster, um, of course, not everyone knows <laughs> what Daniel, Daniel Webster, Webster looks sure, like. Give but us the, he, he give was, us the reference. He, um, he was uh, kind of a – he had sort of a chunky physique and broad-shouldered like the buffalo itself. Um, another reporter said that he w- translated the name Sitting Bull as uh, sedentary Taurus, which was kind of derogatory, but um, – 
And, and just uh, to, to ground the reference in Daniel Webster, this is the American politician, I think, Secretary of State at one point. He was, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I actually blanked, That's on, okay. blanked on the rest <laughs> of it. <laughs> uh, Thank you. There, There is then Buffalo Bill, who's now buried in the foothills west of Denver. Tell me about him as a young man. He was just playing Bill Cody then. He was Bill Cody, and he grew up in a very uh, hard-scrabbled frontier family like a lot of people of that era. There were a number of kids. Um he worked hard from the time he was a little boy to bring home the bacon. Um, he served as an army scout when he was a young man. He, you know, became a very prolific hunter, as we all know. He um, he received the name. He won the name Buffalo Bill in a hunting contest, killing more buffalo than another guy who wanted the name Buffalo Bill. Um, he was an incredible equestrian. He was a showman. You know, most of all, he was he had a big flamboyant personality. Yeah, you really start to see some of the showmanship that will surface when he creates what becomes the the Wild West show when he is an an earlier buffalo hunter. Um, I want to say that Sitting Bull's fame turns almost to fable when he's at the Battle of Little Bighorn. He's credited or accused, depending on points of view back then, with of killing General Custer. Uh, but that turns out to be wrong. Uh, how did that misconception arise before we talk about how Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill come together? Sitting Bull was already quite notorious in the country at that time, before the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And he had been singled out by the U.S. Cavalry as somebody, that someone whom they needed to deal with in order to win these Indian wars. You know, he was on a par with Crazy Horse and some other very uh, well-known leaders of that time. At the Battle of the Little Bighorn, of course, Custer and his 7th Cavalry unit were wiped out, and Custer was a Civil War hero, and it was a very big debacle for the cavalry at that time, and, and somebody had to be blamed for it. So here here was this figure, this pretty well-known figure already, Sinning Bull, and he was singled out as he was nailed as the guy who did it, which was not the case, although he was nearby. When it occurred. When it, when it occurred. And it, from then on, he became public enemy number one, really, and had and fled to Canada. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking with Deanne Stillman about her new book, Blood Brothers, the story of the strange friendship between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. And by this time, Buffalo Bill has started what's called a Wild West show. Uh, it was not an immediate success. In fact, at one point, the show folded. Uh, but this style of entertainment was very popular. What drew Americans to it? Well, the Wild West show was probably the first reality show in the country. Huh. Everything was ripped from the headlines, not weeks or months later, but like moments after things happened. So that like Cody would scalp an Indian, for instance, and then rush back to the New York stage and reenact it, you know, in theater. Um, and that was actually before the Wild West show started. But during the show, he would recreate buffalo stampedes and powwows and shoot 'em ups, and um, you know there were bucking horse acts. And Annie Oakley was in the show, and right. she, of course, was an incredible markswoman. So there were all these um, moments of incredible action ripped from the headlines, being recreated you know, around the country. And Cody was, in effect, creating the American story. And it's against that backdrop that 
Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull become friends uh, and star in the show together, which seems even stranger given that Buffalo Bill earlier on would have been scalping Indians and then recreating that in the show. Uh, That speaks to the story of this strange friendship. That's what Deanne Stillman calls it. We'll be back in a moment to talk more about her book, Blood Brothers, on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's return to my conversation with author Deanne Stillman. She's written Blood Brothers, the story of the strange friendship between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. Uh, Before the break, Deanne, we established that Sitting Bull becomes, in a way, public enemy number one. He's accused of of killing Custer, even though that wasn't the case. Uh, He has fled to Canada. He returns to the States and how is he allowed to i mean we'll talk about his role in the in the wild west shows in, in just a moment but how is he allowed to to join any show of any kind if he is so sought after by authorities well he was notorious and everybody wanted him for their shows at that time and there were a number of circuses traveling around the country he was like the guy to get um Cody really wanted him. He knew that he he needed a, a big Native American co-star, and Sitting Bull was the guy. And the reason Sitting Bull was was allowed to join up with Buffalo Bill yeah. is that there were two ways off the reservation for Native Americans at that time. One was was death, basically, and the other one was they could join up with these shows. I mean, they were not permitted to leave reservations without permission. And Cody would hold hold tryouts uh, in Rushville, Nebraska, um, I think it was every month or so, or periodically, and hundreds of Native Americans would show up and, you know, fully bedecked in feathers and furs and wanting to to join up with Cody for his road show. To essentially play themselves. To, to play themselves. Now, Sinning Bull didn't, obviously did not have to audition or, or show up to do that as he... He was this towering figure. He was equal to Cody in every way in terms of his stature. And I, this is just fascinating to me. I mean, yeah. um, that in a way, what kept Sitting Bull alive for as long as uh, he was able to be alive was show business. In some well, regards. no, he was only with the Wild West for four months. Um, it, it, it was, I mean... He just he lived into his fifties, you know, for a number of reasons, and he might have lived longer if he hadn't um, become ill with pneumonia and just kind of the you know the the terrible uh, duress of his life. Um, he wanted to go home at the end of the four month period because he was homesick, and he had um, found out what he wanted to find out about this advancing American civilization. He realized, he said at the time, that if he had known there were so many white people before the war started, that he might not even engage because... He didn't was, realize the scope, the size of the of the enemy. He didn't realize it at all. Because uh, many people would show up to these shows. As you say, they were the reality TV shows of the day. That's right. The shows were mobbed. Uh, it is uh, Annie Oakley, who you mentioned earlier, who introduces Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull. Is that right? Well, she didn't really introduce them directly. Um, she and Sitting Bull had met in St. Paul, Minnesota, prior to Sitting Bull's hooking up with Cody. And Sitting Bull was in another show then. And he and Annie Oakley was on tour. And he watched her 
uh, her exhibit of, you know, sharpshooting. And he was really impressed. And then he introduced himself afterwards and they struck up this immediate friendship. And he gave her the nickname Little Miss Sure Shot, which actually meant little person who does good things. But the mistranslation totally worked in her favor because it became this brand, you know, to use today's jargon. And it really kind of made her immortal. So then when he found out that she was in Cody's show sometime later, and he was negotiating with Cody about whether or not to join, upon learning that, he was very impressed and and wanted in. It's also true that what motivated Sitting Bull in some respects is he wanted to meet the president, I think. And and that yes. motivated him. Yeah. yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out. It was a, another reason he joined the show. Um, he wanted to go to D.C. and confront the grandfather, as he called the president, and look him in the eye and say, hey, you know, what's up? Why did you betray my people? You haven't honored any of your treaties. And he was never able to do that. Um, some Native American members in the show did get into the State Department for a meeting with some other officials. And strangely enough, there were paintings of buffalo on the walls and other Western scenarios, and it made some of them laugh, and Sitting Bull just stood there in silence. Hmm. Do you think he was a sellout by joining the Wild West show? Not at all. He he was on a mission. He wanted to, as I say, go to D.C. and meet the grandfather. That was He, he really thought that this was the only thing that would get him there. Mm-hmm. He wanted to serve as an ambassador for his own people and, and present himself as, hey, you know, I, I'm just a guy like all the rest of you. Uh, what is the show like when Sitting Bull joins it? Well, the show was doing pretty well, but when Sitting Bull joined up, it, he really catapulted it into the stratosphere. People would show up. He was both reviled and revered at that time, and people would show up to hiss and boo, and in some cases he was spat on. But uh, but other people wanted to meet this great figure of that time and for all time. I mean, Cody acknowledged it during their first meeting in, of all places, Buffalo, New York, that, that Sinning Bull was the Napoleon of his people, as you mentioned, and he was this great figure, and he was not to be called out for killing Custer. It was just completely erroneous, and he was to be respected and um, treated accordingly. And But Cody, his, his arrival helps ticket sales, to say the least. Yes, his uh, Cody was well aware of that, and Sinning Bull knew that he was a valuable, you know, uh, figure uh, for the show as well. He, uh, he was a huge, you know, he was the guy to get. As I said, said, everybody wanted him for their shows. He brought in many, many people. This is a fascinating story, this friendship, especially against the backdrop we've talked about, the war that was raged, waged, pardon me. Why is this friendship's uh, story so important right now? Well, I'm hoping that um, by shining a light on it at this point, we can see that that the alliance between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill served as um, an example of how Native Americans and white people can perhaps, um, you know, move past our uh, incredible 
uh, well, differences doesn't begin to explain, heal this wound, our America's original sin, our betrayal of Native Americans. And we see it playing out at Standing Rock, for instance. Last year, during the uh, closing ceremonies at the demonstrations, some descendants of Little Bighorn uh, veterans, some army, current contemporary army veterans, came to apologize to Lakota elders for the role of their um, ancestors in the Bighorn. And um, uh, one of the elders accepted their prayer and and uh, commented that um, the land belongs to no one and no one can possess the land. And I think that's really significant today. In his final days, Sitting Bull lived on a reservation and that ghost dance we mentioned earlier comes into play. It's really the, the central reason for his death. How does that come about, just briefly? Well, after being blamed for killing Custer and surviving that um, uh, labeling, uh, the government was still out to get him because Sitting Bull had, was near the end of his life, still, you know, an even more towering figure than he was earlier. So as this ghost dance frenzy was reaching its peak, he was singled out one more time as the guy who was responsible for the whole thing. The ghost dancing was um, presented as being threatening to white settlers and others, and it really, it was to some, but many Many newcomers said that it wasn't and that they weren't bothered by it at all. It was, you know, it really was not different than going to church every Sunday and and praying for the second coming. That's what was going on. So Sitting Bull was singled out and tribal police were um, pressed into service to arrest him. And um, that didn't work out and it would have been a death sentence anyway. And when they came to his cabin to get him on a winter's dawn, uh trouble ensued and, and Sitting Bull was killed in the process. Buffalo Bill died much later in 1917. His funeral was in Denver and you describe it uh, as quite the scene, almost America's first traffic jam gathered to to pay homage to him. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ryan. Happy to be here. Deanne Stillman is author of Blood Brothers, the story of the strange friendship between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Finally today, the Yoppers are a Denver trio melding blues, country, and punk rock. The band recently released a new LP, Boy in a Well. It's a concept album set in World War I France about a mother abandoning her unwanted newborn. The record comes with a comic book to help bring the story to life. For a taste of one of the album's softer, more stripped-down moments, this is the song God's Mercy. I'm walking away This terrible day World has no use left for me Leaving her there With a cold and stare has taught me what loneliness can be and the world is on fire in golden time time travels slowly as it burns 
promise must be kept Another body for the pyre Before God's mercy can turn The Yoppers, the Denver Trio's new LP, is called Boy in a Well. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio. To all God's children, being ready.